Drone Warfare and Its Casualties, today, Wednesday, May 22nd. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. President Obama is expected to make his case for U.S. drone strikes overseas in a speech tomorrow. Critics of the program probably won't be satisfied, but this reporter says drones are now a key part of the warfare of the future. Central to it is going to be trying to not have U.S. soldiers en masse in harm's way. Also today, an Afghan author recalls exploring the Bamiyan Buddhas, literally, as a child. And then my father said, do you want to climb the statues? And my family said, can we climb that? And he said, yeah. And later, a citizenship ceremony in New York that's just for kids. It makes me feel happy. I always waited for this moment to happen. Plus, Chinese dissident Ai Weiwei's heavy metal protest video. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We begin today with a spotlight on drones. President Obama is scheduled to give a big speech tomorrow at the National Defense University in Washington. He's expected to outline his counterterrorism strategy and to explain his rationale for this country's use of unmanned aerial vehicles, you know, the drone program. Hundreds of U.S. drone strikes have targeted militants in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia. The number of people killed is hard to pin down precisely, but the U.K.-based Bureau of Investigative Journalism calculates it's somewhere between 3,000 and 4,700. And within that number are a large number of civilian deaths. Journalist Jeremy Scahill has been tracking the drone program for years. In one section of his new book, Dirty Wars, he describes a drone strike in Yemen that killed a radicalized American cleric in 2011. Anwar al-Awlaki had worked with al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and had been linked to several plots against the United States. But Scahill also focuses on another drone attack in Yemen that involved another member of Anwar al-Awlaki's family, also a U.S. citizen. When his eldest son, Abdurrahman, turned 16 years old, he, um, he ran away from home in Sana'a and he went to the middle of nowhere, Yemen, to Shebwa province where there had been repeated strikes aimed at trying to kill his dad and he wanted to find his father. His father is killed in the north of Yemen while he's waiting for him there. And, and then the kid gets stuck. It's the, the Arab Spring was going on. Uh, there was fighting in Yemen. He couldn't make it back to Sana'a, to his grandparents' house, so he had to wait in this village for two weeks. He's out one night having dinner with his teenage cousins when a drone appears above them and launches a missile and blows the, the, the kids up. Uh, now, no one has ever made any allegation that that kid had anything to do with terrorism and that you know, his only connection to alleged terrorism was the fact that his last name was Al-Laki and his dad was Anwar Al-Laki. And the Obama administration has never provided an explanation as to why that kid was killed. I mean, it just seems like an impossible coincidence. Why do you think he was killed? Well, I don't know is the is 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 the honest answer. Um, in my reporting on it, and you know, I've done more reporting since the book came out. You know, I talked to a former senior administration official who worked on the targeted killing program, and he told me actually that John Brennan, who's now the CIA director, believed that it was an intentional hit that either JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, the elite military force, or the CIA had intentionally killed him. Perhaps because, and this happens a lot, the Yemeni government had fed them false information 
you know, that he was a 21-year-old militant or that he had some connection to al-Qaeda. Or he um, he could have been killed in what's called the signature strike, which is this these sort of pre-crime strikes that the Obama administration has been doing in, in certain regions of Yemen and Pakistan, where if you see a group of military-age males in a certain region, um, they'll preemptively declare them as militants and then take them out. It's like pre-crime, like, like the Tom Cruise movie Minority Report. So, mm. you know, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I've, I've dedicated a significant portion of my life over the past couple of years to trying to figure out why this kid was killed. You know, the, in leaks to the media, the administration will say, oh, it was just a mistake or he was near someone that we were trying to kill. But the person that they claim to have targeted in that attack, a, a militant named Ibrahim Albana, is in fact still alive. So, I mean, to, to me, I think that the Obama administration not, not explaining how this 16-year-old American citizen was killed, like why that happened, leaves the door open to people presuming that they did it intentionally, that they sort of killed him in an act of pre-crime, which would really be uh, you know, a harrowing uh, reality. I mean, your narrative tells, uh, you know, tells a story of a boy, Abdurrahman, who simply missed his father and wanted to go see him and then got stuck. I mean, the people who support the drone program would probably say, isn't this just part of the collateral damage uh, of this program? And don't all wars have collateral damage? Well, I mean, it'd be one thing if, if uh, you know, if the kid was sitting next to his father um, and, you know, who the United States claimed to have evidence against that he was involved with plots against the United States. And in fact, a lot of U.S. officials erroneously claim, oh, well, he shouldn't have been near his father. He wasn't near his father. He hadn't seen his father for almost three years at the time of his death. Uh, I mean, collateral damage of what strike? I mean, and also, I'm sure you agree with me. I don't like that term collateral damage anyway when we're killing civilians. I mean, these are, <laughs> these are innocent people that are being killed. And you know, I mean, I got to know that family very well, and uh, and 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 feel like I have a really comprehensive picture of who that kid was, and just the notion that he had anything to do with terrorism is ridiculous. But you know, in order for it to be quote unquote collateral damage, you have to actually identify who the real target was that that makes him collateral damage of that strike, and the U.S. has failed to do that. You know, if I go back to uh, some of the rationale for the drone program, keeping American soldiers out of harm's way and, and, and dealing with threats against uh, U.S. national security, what, what's wrong with that? Well, I, I think that there's, there's sort of a false choice there. It's not that the U.S. would be sending in, you know, hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops to, uh, to Yemen or Pakistan if it wasn't doing the drone program. It would probably have to do an approach similar to the Clinton administration where you relied on trying to take suspects into custody and get indictments against them. And part of why I think the Obama administration is, is doing this is because Guantanamo remains open, you know, five years into the administration, despite the pledges to close it on the campaign trail. Obama, every time he tries to prosecute someone in civilian courts in the U.S. on terrorism charges, the Republicans go bananas and they say, oh, he shouldn't be read his Miranda rights and, you know, we should ship them to Guantanamo and these people should be enemy combatants. And so I think part of it is that the, you know, the kill capture program, the kill part of it has become more convenient. But also it's a myth that there aren't U.S. forces on the ground in harm's way when we're using drones. You have to have people on the ground painting targets, finding out who's who in various networks. And the U.S. does have a clandestine and covert presence on the ground in Yemen. It's part of how Anwar al-Awlaki was discovered. So it's a kind of myth that there aren't Americans in harm's way. I, I will say, though, that I think we are looking at the future of how the U.S. is going to wage its wars, and central to it is going to be trying to not have uh, U.S. soldiers en masse in harm's way. Jeremy Scahill is the author of Dirty Wars, The World is a Battlefield. He joined us from Philadelphia Station, WHYY. Jeremy, good to talk. Thanks. Thank you. 
And this afternoon, the Obama administration formally admitted for the first time that it had killed radical American cleric Anwar al-Awlaki and three other U.S. citizens in anti-terror strikes abroad since 2009. This came in a letter from Attorney General Eric Holder to Senator Patrick Leahy. But Holder said Alaki Sr. was the only U.S. citizen killed intentionally. The letter comes on the eve of a major speech on terror policy by President Barack Obama. We'll have coverage of that speech on tomorrow's edition of The World. And for all of our coverage of drones, just go to theworld.org slash drones. Sao Paulo, Brazil, it's a tough place to get around. The city of 11 million, South America's largest, has notoriously bad traffic. Rush hour backups can reach a citywide total of more than 180 miles on a bad day. Think about that. That's like lining up cars bumper to bumper from here in Boston almost all the way to New York City. One quick alternative for desperate commuters would be to ride a bike, but that's a very risky alternative, as the world's Jason Margolis found out. Here's a quick comparison. Last year, 18 cyclists were killed in New York City. 14 were killed in London. In the city of Sao Paulo, there were 52 reported cycling deaths. So I approached my bike ride in Sao Paulo with a bit of trepidation. I went for a short ride with Andre Campos and Daniel Santini, two young cycling advocates. They both said, don't worry, biking here isn't so bad. Well, I don't think it's such a risk if you take special attention to some points. So I will not be or I will avoid speed avenues. That's what Santini promised we'd be doing on our ride together. But there was a problem. Oh yes, you have not the front brake. The front brake does not work? No, not work. Okay, great. We are going to fix it. We are going to fix it right now. And one other small problem. One helmet. One helmet. I, I'm okay with all the helmets, but... but uh, they insisted yeah, yeah, yeah. I wear the helmet. I agreed. Santini said the big problem here is speed. People just drive too fast. In Brazil, traffic is very violent. Uh, I mean, a lot of people die in traffic. Accidents, I, I do not even like to name them accidents because it happens all the time. It's not something that... Oh, it happens. It happens all the time. The data on cycling in Brazil is cloudy, and it's hard to make cross-country comparisons. It's unclear how many Brazilians are biking to begin with, or how many people are getting hurt. I called several international cycling experts who had reams of data, but little on Brazil or South America. You kind of just have to gauge cycling safety here by trying it. Should we ride? Yeah. Okay. Beyond the faulty brake, our bike ride was pretty tame. In fact, I quite enjoyed it. After about 15 minutes on somewhat busy streets, we pulled onto a side street and were just chatting as we rode along. I only felt like one guy came a little too close. <laughs> and now we have two. But he, he's delivering pizza, so he's, he's in a real rush. That guy didn't seem concerned at all about us. That attitude is a real problem in Sao Paulo, says João Paulo Amaral, a cyclist and researcher with the Brazilian consumer rights group IDEC. Amaral describes a recent gruesome accident where a passing car got too close to a cyclist and severed the cyclist's arm. And the driver took his arm away and threw it on a river like 30 kilometers from that place. And he ran because he thought he wouldn't be punished for that. 
And what happened is that then they found out the guy and he went to the police and he said he did it, he said he was sorry, and now he's out on the streets again. Amaral says he still gets on his bike each day for one simple reason. It's the fastest way to get around. In Sao Paulo, traffic is so bad that wealthy businessmen are relying on helicopters. Amaral says even if he could afford to do that, he wouldn't. We've proved that helicopter is not a really good solution for Sao Paulo. We have the uh, intermodal challenge in which we have different means of transportation uh, going from one place to another at the same time and the bicycle won from the helicopter. (laughs) It took the bike 22 minutes to get across town during rush hour, beating the helicopter by 10 minutes. That's factoring time for takeoff and landing. The bike beat the car by a full hour. More and more people are getting this message, and a cycling culture is slowly taking hold in Sao Paulo. I visited a weekly event called Mano Roda, which means hands on the wheel. Machias Fingerman hosts it in his garage. It's a kind of bike workshop where people uh, come here to learn and to work on his own bicycle. Fingerman and a few experienced cyclists teach others how to change tires or fix brakes. You can take a beer from Fingerman's fridge and put a few bucks in a wicker basket on the honor system. The goal of this informal happy hour... Encourage people to use bicycle. Marcio Campos didn't need any encouragement. He's been riding a long time. He says 10, 15 years ago, cycling in Sao Paulo was worse than today. He says every day it's better here because more people are riding. There's safety in numbers. But the numbers in Sao Paulo still look thin to me. I told bike advocate Daniel Santini that I'd seen no more than a dozen cyclists in three days in Sao Paulo, and I was on the lookout. We saw no other cyclists on our 20-minute ride together. One. One just passed through right now. <laughs> but, uh, but it doesn't seem like there's many of mine. No, 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 no. Uh, That's the catch-22. Sao Paulo is a dangerous place to ride, in part because not enough people do it. There's also not much in the way of bike lanes. But to get more bike lanes, there has to be more clamor for them. Santini assured me there will be. He says everybody's unhappy with the traffic and pollution in Sao Paulo. It's boring to, to be in a city that you cannot move. You are always stuck in traffic jams. He says things are changing because they have to change. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Sao Paulo. Still ahead, imagine a church with its own food court. You'll find that in the Philippines, and you'll hear it later here on The World from Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Remember the historic Afghan city of Bamiyan? In March of 2001, the Taliban blew up two enormous Buddha statues there. Well, believe it or not, before that happened, people had been living in caves behind those Buddhas. We'll hear more about that in a moment from Afghan author Kais Akbar Omar. He's written a memoir about his tumultuous youth in Afghanistan. It's called A Fort of Nine Towers. It begins in Kabul, where Omar spent some idyllic childhood years growing up with 25 cousins within his grandfather's lush-walled estate. But when the rockets of rival Mujahideen factions began falling nearby... 
Omar, his parents, little sisters, and baby brother took to the road in a beat-up jalopy. They sought refuge in some unusual places, in an old fort and with camel and sheep herders, and, as Omar recalls, in Bamiyan. Bamiyan is a valley. It's all mountain and uh, quite a few caves. I don't know how many. So when we went there, we were trying to escape Afghanistan to cross the border to either Uzbekistan or Tajikistan or Turkmenistan. But wherever we went, war was chasing us. So you were a kid. Was this the first time you'd ever seen statues in your life? Uh, well, uh, before that, I've seen it in my uh, textbook in a school. And I hear about it often from my grandfather who used to go there with, uh, he was a herder. Uh, I mean, his family was a herders and, and they used to take their herds and, and, and in spring time to feed the like thousands of sheep and camel. So there you are after this long road trip with your family. You get to Bamiyan. You're a kid climbing those stairs up the statues. What were you thinking? What were you feeling? Well, suddenly I was seeing this big, giant thing carved in the wall. It's really amazing to see that thing. The small one is like 150 feet tall. Feet, the exactly. The bigger yeah. one is what? The bigger one is like 52 meters tall, so it is like uh, only six foot taller than Slightly the small. Than yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And standing here in front of these statues that I saw in my textbooks or uh, the, the photos that I've seen in Kabul, and here I'm standing, and it is like as if the, the statue is going to walk out. And it is so big. And, and, and then my father said, do you want to climb the statues? And, my, and we said, can we climb that? And he said, yeah. It has the stairs that curved inside the mountain that goes all the way to the shoulder, to the head, to the rest of the body. We climbed all the way to the top. By the time we got to the, to the head of the Buddha, we were all sweaty. But the view from there... No, I was, was going to say the view must have been extraordinary. Wow. From up there, you see the whole valley. It is so beautiful, green, and the weather is so nice and clear and, and a spectacular view. You could almost be confused for having been on a fun family vacation. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> so we were trying to find a way to get away from war and escape the country. And it was every day was struggle for my parents to feed us, to clothe us, to keep us warm and not, uh, you know, not get sick. So that's a lot of work for parents. But as a kid, my sister and I, we had the most adventurous time of our life. So there you are taking in this incredible view from the top of the Buddha. And then you find just behind the head of the Buddha, there's a cave as big as a living room. Uh, Describe this space. Yeah. So as soon as we walk into the cave, my father said, this is a very nice space. What do you think? Uh, He looked at my mother and my mother said, yeah, it is nice. And he said, we're going to live here. And my mother just, you know, gave her one of those looks, which we couldn't (laughs) tell whether she was happy or not. And we didn't know either about my father, whether he was making jokes because he would make jokes like that. And And my father said, well, I don't have that much money. There is not any hotel, so we can uh, go and rent one and live there. And uh, we are stuck here until we hear that Mazar is safe, so we can go there, which is bordering with Turkmenistan, and then we go to Uzbekistan. So my mother just didn't know, and then he looked at us, uh, my father, said, uh, what do you think, kids? And we all said, oh, we love it, because the view <laughs> was so beautiful. And then he said, well, he crunched on his knees, and he said, come here. So we all stood in a line in front of him, and he said, But I have rules. Rule number one, when you climb the stairs, be very careful. Don't fall down. Rule number two, everyone who's older should look after the one who's younger. And then he looked at everybody and said, that's all. Uh, Two rules. That's not too bad. Yeah. (laughs) So we all loved it. And we all said, oh, that's that's very nice. So we ended up living there for two over two months over two months and until it was not safe anymore. Was there anybody else living in the cave before you uh, got there? I mean, no. or did this idea just pop into your dad's head? There were some families uh, living in the caves very below, down below. 
not so high up on the, on the top. And, and then we shared meal with each other when we cooked kebab or something that smelled really good. So we took a plate to three neighbors and other caves. And then when they made something really delicious, they did the same thing for us. And every day I had to go and play, find new kids in other caves and play with them, play a marble or fly kites or run on the mountains. And, and it, just, just, it was just beautiful. Wow. It was beautiful, yeah. I mean, how did you get supplies? How did you get furniture up these uh, oh. these ladders and these steep stairways? Yeah. Well, speaking of furniture, there's no such a thing there as furniture. What did you sleep on? My father just bought a few mattresses and a few blankets and quilts from the local bazaar. Uh, so we just bought that and we stitched them all together. And then we all slept together. So my, my parents slept in the middle and my sister behind my mother and I slept behind my, my father. And we had one big, big blanket on top of us. And that's how we slept. For your parents, this was survival until the next step of the journey. For you, did did it match up to the fun that you were expecting it to be, living in this cave for two months? Uh, it was. You know, you look up to your parents that they will provide all the food. That's all you need. And the rest of the time, you just run from one cave to the next cave, try to have fun with all the other kids and try climbing the mountains and, you know, just having a good time. Now, your family is Pashtun, as you said, and yet you were treated really well in Bamiyan by the, the Hazaras, the yeah. dominant group there. Did, did you expect that? After like a month, uh, people were very, very nice and kind to us. And I prayed in the mosque with them, even though we, they were Shias and we are Sunni, and we have totally different mosques like Protestants and Catholics. We prayed the way we prayed. They prayed the way they prayed. And uh, it was very nice. And everybody knew us. We knew everybody else and people in, the, in, in other caves. You know, it was like a family. It was really, I mean, that's Afghanistan. Everywhere you go, you find your third, fourth, fifth, or tenth cousin. Yeah. Why did you leave eventually? Oh, even though it was very, very cold, we, we, could, we could manage to survive. But the war was coming towards Bamiyan. And we hear that from the local people who travel between, uh, you know, one province to another province. And a, a day or two later, you hear that from BBC World Service, which was our own uh, source of information. It was like a campus for us in the middle of the mountains, guiding us to which direction to go to be safe. And when we hear that, we had to get out of Bamiyan. Right. Yeah. Now, the morning your family got in the car to leave uh, for Kunduz, that was the last time you would see the statues of Buddha. What were you feeling leaving uh, them? I just stood in front of the statue feeling like I leave this big thing here. What will happen to it? Uh, because it is really cold here. But I kept looking at it and I said, no, I don't think he minds really cold or warm weather or hot weather. He, he, it has been standing here for uh, over 2,000 years, uh, and then, it, yeah, it will stand here for another 2,000 years, so I'll have a chance to come back and see it, but that never happened, so. Kais, what was your reaction when you heard uh, the Buddhas had been destroyed by the Taliban? It was like I was, 10 I was, years later. I, so. was, I was heartbroken. I, uh, when, when, when I hear that, I just couldn't believe it since we did not have a TV, we didn't see that. Uh, I didn't know what was it, but I could imagine what happened to it. I still have in Kabul uh, photos of the Buddha. So I went through them all over again, just seeing like, okay, now it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Once I lived in the head of the Buddha, and now it lives inside mine. Kais Akbar Omar's memoir is called A Fort of Nine Towers. You can see a video of him reading a passage about his unconventional parents at theworld.org. By the way, Omar made it safely out of Afghanistan. He now lives in Boston. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a new agreement offers Filipino workers in Saudi Arabia some relief. 
There were no provisions for having a day off, even having rest periods during the day. So you find some of these maids working 16, 18-hour days, not having a proper room in which they can rest. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. After all the talk about immigration reform, the process finally seems to be moving forward in Congress. A comprehensive immigration bill is now out of committee and on its way to the Senate floor and on to the House of Representatives after that. If the bill gets past those hurdles, 11 million immigrants living in the U.S. illegally could be on a 13-year pathway to citizenship. That seems like a very long wait, but under existing law, even legal immigrants face years of waiting to become U.S. citizens, unless they're under 18 and have a parent who just became a citizen. In that case, there's no waiting in line for the youngster. Well, just waiting in line at the actual swearing-in. And that's where we take you now, a swearing-in ceremony in New York City for America's newest young citizens. Marilla Ivorak of station WNYC reports. I hereby declare, I hereby declare on, oath, on oath that I absolutely, absolutely and entirely... It sounds routine, the swearing-in of America's newest citizens. But on a recent morning in downtown New York, the crowd was unusually large. 119 children and teenagers were here, all receiving their citizenship certificates and masks. They came from over 30 countries, from Albania and Ecuador to Pakistan and the UK. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations. For many immigrants in the U.S., getting a green card and eventually citizenship can be long and difficult. But if you are a young immigrant, under 18, and your parents just became a citizen, well, you're eligible for automatic citizenship. So a few times a year in New York, there's a large ceremony so that America's newest and youngest citizens can pick up their certificates. Waving an American flag and flashing a big smile, Yeli Mateo said she had been looking forward to this day for a long time. It makes me feel happy and... Uh, I always waited for this moment to happen. You always waited for this moment. And how old are you? Nine. I mean, ten. Yaley and her brother, 16-year-old Michael, came from the Dominican Republic seven years ago. Michael also got his certificate. Explaining what this moment meant for him, he seemed to aim for what he thought was the right thing to say. It's a lot to me, because I know I'm part of this country now. I can defend the people from here going to the army, I don't know. But when asked if he really wanted to join the army? Not really, but if I have to, I'm going to do it. <laughs> if it's necessary. Yeah. Okay, otherwise, what would you like to do? I don't know, I want to be a singer. A rapper, to be precise. Beaming with pride was their dad, Julio. He came to the U.S. with his brother, Robert, whose two sons also got their certificates at the ceremony. Julio said the whole family was ecstatic. Very happy, excited, because, you know, my children are citizens and part of this country. So that means that they go to have better opportunity here. 
Last year, more than 50,000 children got their citizenship certificates. They're often accompanied by parents like Patel Taylor, who seem to relish the moment more than their offspring. Taylor, a school crossing guard in Brooklyn, watched as her two daughters, sporting bright pink jackets, got their certificates. Zahara Tamar Taylor. Atiyah Monique Taylor. Ten-year-old Atiyah was happy with hers, but 11-year-old Zahara had some reservations. She didn't exactly like her photo on the certificate. Looks okay. Looks okay. Oh wow! I don't think they understand the 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 extent of having been a U.S. citizen as yet because they are still young. Taylor, who's now 42, came to the U.S. with her daughters from Trinidad seven years ago. For her, America is still the country where anything is possible. That is the message she says she tries to instill in her daughters every day. You have the opportunity to get more. Whatever dream you have, whatever value you want, you could work for it. The only limit is what you set for yourself. That day, Atia and Zahara said they were just looking forward to not having limits on a celebratory shopping spree. For the world, I'm Marella Ivrak, New York. Last week, we hope you caught our series on domestic workers here in the U.S. Part of our global nation coverage, we heard about efforts to try and improve their working conditions. Well, I just found out that there are more than half a million Filipinos working in Saudi Arabia, and you'd think those kind of numbers would assure them some labor protection. Actually, until this week, they had very few protections. But the governments of Saudi Arabia and the Philippines have now signed an agreement giving Filipino workers more rights. We're talking specifically Filipino household service workers. Let's face it; these are mostly maids. Kathleen Newland directs the Migrants, Migration, and Development Program at the Migration Policy Institute in Washington. She's been monitoring the flow of Filipino labor in the Gulf region. Kathleen, first of all, tell us why Filipinos are in Saudi Arabia. To make money, that's really the the long and the short of it. The uh, Philippine government has, for decades, encouraged uh, labor migration to relieve unemployment in the Philippines, to earn foreign exchange, which comes in the form of workers' remittances, and uh, it's a very well established pattern. The Philippines sends over a million workers a year uh, out of the Philippines as labor migrants. Right. And so a, a lot of the abuse is mistreatment by the employers, if we can call them employers? The problems include uh, mistreatment by the employers, including physical and sexual abuse. But the biggest problem really is sheer overwork. There were no provisions in Saudi law for having a day off every week even having rest periods during the day. So you find some of these maids working 16, 18-hour days, not having a proper room in which they can rest, having no privacy. Their employers often kept back their documents, their passports, their work permits, so that they were uh, really very much at the mercy of the employer and You know, if they were lucky, they would get someone who behaved decently toward them. If they were unlucky, uh, they have very little recourse. Kathleen, for you, what are the three most key provisions of this agreement that'll help Filipino maids? Well, I think uh, the regulation of working hours, the requirement that there be a day of rest during the week, that there be rest time during a twenty-four hour period, is one extremely important provision. 
I think another is, the, of course, for the workers, the, the minimum wage, if it's followed, and the fact that the agreement um, bans charging the workers for their own recruitment costs is another. So it'll be more financially beneficial to the workers. Mm-hmm. And then the, the third would be that there's a supposed to be a 24-hour hotline for to assist domestic workers who run into trouble in their places of employment. And if there isn't some kind of uh, of mechanism like that, this agreement could reside solely on paper and not end up helping uh, the workers themselves very much at all. Let me ask you one last thing. I, I just read that at the beginning of 2013, there were 45 maids from Sri Lanka, Indonesia, the Philippines, and India on death row in Saudi Arabia. What is that about? Well, uh, it's... It's hard. The, there's really not very much transparency about those cases. Uh, in some cases, maids have uh, fought back in in their own account of what's happened. They have fought back when they were being sexually or physically assaulted by an employer, and um, you know have ended up killing someone. Sometimes they've been charged with the deaths of children in their care when it's really not entirely clear that they were responsible. You know, I'm sure there's a variety of cases, but there's very little transparency about uh, what they are. I will say that uh, the, the thing that really does the incident that triggered the Philippines government's great interest in the plight of their workers overseas was a, a capital punishment case in the Far East when a Philippine maid, Flor Concepcion, was executed um, in, I believe it was in Singapore, and it caused such an uproar in the Philippines that the government really was obliged to sit up and take notice. Is there any chance that this agreement may open the possibility that some of these cases in Saudi Arabia may be revisited? I don't see any direct connection uh, to that, so it's, it's hard to feel confident that that would happen. Kathleen Newland with the Migration Policy Institute in Washington. Thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Back in the Philippines now, it's the third largest Catholic country in the world. It's also filled with shopping malls, including two of the world's largest malls. And yes, there is a connection between the church and those malls. The Catholic Church has been losing followers since Filipinos have found other things to do on Sundays, mainly shopping at the mall. So to win some of them back, many Catholic priests are now celebrating Mass in the malls. John Otis has a story from Manila. It's early Sunday morning, and people are already streaming into the Robinson's Place shopping mall. The seven-story Robinson's Place is a temple of consumerism. It houses 350 stores, including gun shops, dental offices, massage parlors, and a Kenny Rogers roaster. After a while, the music and the crowds can be a little overwhelming. But up on the fourth floor next to the Cineplex and a barber shop, the atmosphere is more soothing. Mass is being offered for hundreds of mall goers seated in plastic chairs around a makeshift altar. Good morning to all of you. Good morning, Father. The priest switches between English and the local language, Tagalog. The Catholic Church is doing all it can to reach out. In the hot, humid Philippines, many families prefer to spend Sundays in climate-controlled malls than in church. So, the priests have followed them. At Robinson's, I meet Father Maximo Villanueva, 
He also preaches at a nearby church, but he admits that the mall is more user-friendly. It's too hot in the Philippines. Unlike in the States, where the churches are air-conditioned, our churches are not air-conditioned, so they go to the mall rather than the church. About a second after the mass, you can eat anywhere and go to the movies, maybe. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. But the Catholic Church's problems run deeper than a lack of A.C., Many Filipinos are dismayed by the sexual abuse scandals in the church and reject its conservative stance on social issues. Last year, for example, the country's Catholic hierarchy strongly opposed a popular new law that provides free birth control methods to poor people. That law is now on hold as the Supreme Court decides whether it's unconstitutional. Some Filipino Catholics are flocking to other religions, while some are just becoming less devout. A recent survey found that only 37% of Filipino Catholics go to Mass, down from 66% in the 1990s. Bringing Mass to shopping malls may help reverse these trends. In fact, the practice is now being copied by a handful of priests in the U.S. and Europe. But there are some downsides, says Rene Santiago, a retired car salesman attending Mass at Robinson's place. People come and they don't dress properly. They wear shorts, they wear slippers as if they're in the house. I mean, you only face God once in a week, why don't you dress properly, Another problem is that an escalator cuts through the space where Father Villanueva holds Mass, bringing a constant stream of pedestrians. I am very aware that most people are not fully concentrated also in the celebration, unlike in the church where you can see people looking at the altar, and it's more or less the focus and the center of the celebration. But in here, there are too many distractions, but it's the challenge, I believe. Wherever they are, the church will be there for them. With the religious service over, workers stack chairs and haul away flower pots. Soon, this temporary holy space will be overrun by shoppers. But Mass here has become so popular that Father Villanueva is lobbying management to build a permanent chapel inside the mall. For The World, I'm John Otis, Manila, the Philippines. See what a mass inside a shopping mall looks like. We have pictures at theworld.org. We're all trying to get more done in less time these days, whether it's getting to church or finding a soulmate. In the Czech Republic, officials in Prague are trying to spark some love on the city's metro line of all multitasking places. Prague's transport company is proposing dedicated train cars just for singles to mingle on the way to work. Spokesman Philip Dropal told Reuters, we want to emphasize that public transport is not only a means of travel, but that you can do things there that you cannot do in your car. Hmm. Get a little reading in and maybe even a date? So what are you reading? But single checks can save their pickup lines for a bit. Officials are still in the planning stage, polling Prague commuters to find out their preferences. I can only imagine the questionnaire. Do you like pina coladas? Getting caught on the train? Yeah, I know. Watch the closing doors. For the GeoQuiz today, we're looking for the popular name of a Chinese landmark. It's a big sports stadium in Beijing. The 80,000-seat venue also serves as an entertainment center. It's hosted winter carnivals, complete with imported snow, outdoor operas, as well as international soccer matches. But it's most famous as a centerpiece for the Beijing Summer Olympics in 2008. 
Now, the stadium was a team effort. It was designed by a group of Swiss architects and international artists, including Chinese artists and political dissident Ai Weiwei. Ai Weiwei has put together something a little different today, his first single. We'll get to that shortly, but first try to name the Beijing landmark. You're listening to The World on Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We hear a lot about environmental problems in Latin America, but not so much about solutions, or at least about progress. Well, in Peru, a new president came into office a couple of years ago, vowing to improve the country's environmental record. And recent events suggest he's starting to make good on his promise. Here's more from reporter Mitra Taj. It's only a few hundred miles from the edge of Peru's Amazon rainforest to the capital, Lima. But for many here, it might as well be the other side of the planet. That's Wendy Pineda of the indigenous rights group Alianza Arcana. Pineda says if you ask people here if they know that most of Peru is in the Amazon, they'll have no idea. Here, we're very centered on what happens on the coast and in the capital. Pineda says that helps explain why oil pollution in the Pastaza River Basin in Peru's Amazon went largely unchecked for nearly 40 years. She says the pollution is impossible for residents and visitors to avoid. It's not just that the landscape has changed, she says. It's the sick feeling you get when you're there. Gases from the oil make your eyes burn. It bothers your skin. It's clear life can't develop there. There are no fish nearby, no animals. But Lima is finally starting to pay attention. Peru's president, Ollanta Humala, was elected in 2011 partly on a pledge to protect the environment. The promise especially resonated with voters in far-flung provinces where big mining and oil projects can drastically alter lives. And recently, Umala's administration made its most dramatic move yet. It declared a state of emergency in the Pastaza Basin and gave an Argentinian oil company operating there three months to clean up. It's a big step for a small country where oil and mining companies have been at work for decades, but where the Environment Ministry is barely five years old. But Environment Minister Manuel Pulgar Vidal says he is under direct orders from the president to make sure the company complies. There should be no impunity in cases like this, Pulgar Vidal says. We can no longer allow companies to flout the rules and hurt the population. The company, Plus Petrol, declined to be interviewed and said in a statement it is not responsible for the pollution, which it says it inherited from another company operating in the same area before it got started 12 years ago. But Plus Petrol says it will clean up the pollution anyway. Some indigenous leaders remain skeptical. Aurelio Chino lives in the Pastaza River Basin. He says, we always hear the same thing when an oil company wants to drill for more oil. They say, don't worry, there is nothing to fear, Chino says. Our technology is cutting edge. They have said that so much that I challenge them. Bring out your cutting edge technology, put it to use, and clean up our forest. Chino says tribes in the area rely on the rainforest for everything, making it hard for them to avoid exposure to the pollution. And he says illnesses unknown to older generations are now common. Chino hopes the government will follow through on its order, but says it's too early to tell whether it will. 
The Umal administration has taken other important steps on the environment. Among other things, it's moved the approval process for environmental impact studies from the Mining and Energy Ministry to the Environment Ministry. It's also imposed tougher fines for polluting companies, and it passed a law giving some indigenous groups more say in projects that affect them. But some say Umala has not been as aggressive as needed or promised on the environment, especially when it comes to mining, which is a traditional engine of Peru's economy. Jose de Achave runs an environmental group in Lima. This administration has swung back and forth on the environment, de Achave says. Doing it right requires a lot of political will, and that means upsetting some very important interests. De Chave was a top official in the Environment Ministry at the start of Umala's term, but resigned after a crackdown on protesters trying to stop the expansion of a big gold mine with a spotty environmental record. The project would have been the biggest mining investment ever in Peru. But ultimately, the government put the plan on hold, a move that makes De Chave hopeful that Umala will stick to his promise to put the environment and communities before business. For the world, I'm Mitra Taj, Lima. Now, Ai Weiwei, he's known for a lot of things. He's probably China's best-known artist. He's also a political activist and government gadfly. But Ai Weiwei is not widely recognized for his musical talent, at least until now. Well, there may be some talent there. Who's to really say? This track is from Ai Weiwei's new music video. It's a strongly worded song protesting China's abuse of state power. That's a familiar theme for him. He spent 81 days in detention back in 2011, and the new video includes a recreation of the cell where he was held. The song is called Dumbass in English, though that's apparently a tame translation. It's already been blocked online in China, but Ai Weiwei says his video and the message will still get through. My songs will certainly be blocked. Not just my songs, but my photograph and my name are all blocked. But that's no problem. Today we live in an age of advancing technology. Any blocking of information just shows that this kind of so-called sensitive information is information that China really needs, and it can't be blocked out. Ai Weiwei has already put his stamp on Beijing. He was one of the creative forces behind the Beijing landmark called the Bird's Nest. Remember that? He collaborated with the Swiss architectural team that created Beijing's Olympic Stadium. It was built for the 2008 Summer Games. It's still there, and it's the answer to our GeoQuiz. Uh, that'll be just fine. Thank you. Just a bit off of Ai Weiwei's new music video. You can watch it at theworld.org. It's part of his planned heavy metal album. Even he admits it doesn't sound that good, but he says he's trying very hard. He'll keep doing it, and he says he hopes one day to sing well. And let's fade down that presumed one-hit wonder from Ai Weiwei and replace it with... Yep, Julio Iglesias sells much bigger in China than Ai Weiwei, much bigger. Just last month, Julio Iglesias traveled to Beijing to receive two awards. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records for best-selling male Latin artist, and they also gave him the most popular international artist in China. Way to go, Julio. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. Every time I'm
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International